Well, thanks, band. It's good to be back. We were, uh, our family took a little short vacation last week up to the foothills and um, got to worship at a different church. Uh, and it was fun, but um, missed you guys. Glad to be back. Uh, listen, children, we're going to have you stick around for just a couple minutes. We have one more song we're going to do. Um, but I have a little short part of the message that I wanted to share with you guys first. And um, last week I got to listen online. By the way, there's just a tip. Every Probably by about Monday, um, the messages that are spoken in here are on our website, nbcsj.org. You just go to sermons and right-click it, and you can listen to it. Um, so I took a listen. I was with you uh, via the miracle of the iPod, um, or more appropriately, the iPhone, and, um, and listened to Kurt's message. So I kind of got to hear what was talked about here. And uh, we're going to continue this whole theme. John 6 is really one dialogue. It's really one teaching session in, in a synagogue. And so we break it up week by week. And so you're going to hear some overlap today. And, um, and it was just, it was really fun to hear kind of the direction that Kurt took it and whatnot. And just by way of review, you know, Kurt drew this out that we're a hungry culture, aren't we? Um, people are really the same almost everywhere you go. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to get to hear a little bit from some of the mission trips that have gone on. We're going to have a special Sunday um, with a lot of music and a lot of testimony and whatnot. And we just had someone come back from China. We're going to get to hear from Dwayne uh, a little bit uh, just in, in a couple of weeks. And I haven't traveled a lot of the world, but I do know this. I do know that people are relatively the same in almost every corner of the world um, in some certain areas. And Kurt drew some of those out. One is that we're just, we're just a, a hungry culture and a hungry people. That's the way God made us. And into this, into this design of being a hungry people, Jesus comes and offers himself as the ultimate meal. That's what John 6 is all about. He basically, he basically offers himself to eat. And it's a weird concept to us. It was a strange concept when it was first said in this synagogue so long ago. Um, I started just thinking back, and, and, and um, I'm a bit of a history buff. I stopped by on the way home from our vacation. We stopped in Davis, where, um, where there's a couple of college students who are there, and we popped in on them, and I always love to pop in unannounced on college students. You know, it's fun to see their pastor, you know, and uh, these guys had nothing to hide. They, were, they welcomed me right in. They're both history majors. And, um, and Curran, my 11-year-old, goes, ew, you're a history major. You know, you can't fathom, you know, going into a whole major of history. Um, but these guys both love it. They watch the History Channel and they just get super into it, you know. And um, as I started thinking back on history, you know, it's not just a modern phenomenon that we're hungry for answers, that we're hungry for, for meaning, that we're hungry for hope. Um, it's just really this thing that you see over and over in history. And different cultures express it differently. Um, but there was an interesting period of time, and really it's curiously named, uh, it's a period called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment happened in the 18th century. And the reason I say it's curiously named is because of this. In the Enlightenment, basically, then modern man, of course now they're old, but they were modern at that point. They basically thought, you know what, religion and God, those are like shackles to us. They're chains, they're in prisons. So we're gonna, we're gonna throw off all the entanglement of God, all the entanglement of religion, and we're going to address life and look life through reason. Now, using logic, reason, and your brain is godly and the right thing to do. But what they do is they began to pursue answering the big questions of life, like, why am I here? 
Where is all of this going? And specifically, what's happening to me after I die? Those are some of the big questions we all struggle with at some point. We all face and, and, and bump up against, right? The reason they're big questions is because they're, they're kind of beyond us, just easy pat answers. Well, when they got to those questions, they addressed those with no reference of God whatsoever. But curiously, instead of finding themselves liberated and, um, and free, these, these enlightened people really found a, a very dark and despairing conclusion. And here's the dark and despairing conclusion. Mankind is a, is a random set of circumstances. Matter plus time plus chance created this living organism. And all we are, according to someone who might have lived in the enlightened period, is this random kind of collection of material that you can break down and measure and all that stuff. But all we are is, is a dying mass of organism in a, in a dying universe. And it matters not whether we really live here or die, what choices we make today or tomorrow or the rest of our life. And what happens is it really led to despair. And it led to a terrifying place, which really is descriptive of hell. All hell is is a place without God. Well, if we try to bring hell on earth, we would remove God from everything. Remove God from the equation altogether. And that's where you end up when you pursue those questions. Now, here's part of why you can see where they got there. Bump back 200 years before that. In the 1500s, you look at the church. And the church at that time was doing some horrible, horrible things. Here are just a, a small sampling of what's going on in the church in that day. The church in those days, if I tell someone I'm a pastor right now, they don't give me free meals, they don't give me better parking, they don't even give me free golf. They say, big whoop, you're a loser, paid the full price. They don't care. It's not a big high thing to be a pastor in this culture, right? Move it back hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was a really place of prestige and honor. And in fact, the church was kind of a powerhouse player in the social landscape. So what, what began to happen was this. Imagine this. I mean, just think biblically for a second, okay? Hopefully we think biblically a lot. But people were taking positions in the church. We've brought our intern elders before you and said, we want to run the godly process and say, if you see any fault in these men, you bring it up. Because we have some passages in Scripture that point out what a spiritual leader in this church family ought to be. You know what they were doing in those days? They were selling off those positions to the highest bidder. Hey, you're wealthy? You can scratch my back a little bit? Yeah, you can be an elder in our church. Sweet. That's how it was going down. Worse yet, they were basically selling, it's called indulgences, they were basically selling off forgiveness of sins. Talk about making a mockery of Jesus Christ and a mockery of the shed blood of Jesus that frees us from sin. How about if I started charging you to come to church? And how about if somehow I got into my head and convinced you that you needed to pay me and keep my wallet padded uh, so that you could go free, guilt-free this week? That's the kind of stuff that was going on. Now, October 31st, what happened, kids? Anyone know? Yeah, what happened? Yeah. How many of you got candy a few nights ago? Yeah. How many parents are thrilled about that? <laughs> Um, Saturday morning, uh, I was wise and got out of the house and, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but my, my wife got to deal with the aftermath of October 31st in our household because of a, a family function that was wisely scheduled for the guys to get out of the house. Um, 
But on a different October 31st, October 31st in the 1500s, 1517, there was this young monk, and he was, he was in the church, he was a part of the church, and he saw this corruption, and he read his Bible, and he had the Holy Spirit, and he said, this is wrong. You know how much power he had? About this much. You know how much courage he had? He had a courage to fill this room. Because in those days, when you went against the church and you said this is wrong to big people in big powerful places, you just didn't last long. So on October 31st, he took these 95 theses, these 95 statements that just pointed out the wrong in the church and how skewed we had gotten as a religion. And he took a nail and he nailed it to this castle door that happened to be a church. His name was Martin Luther. And that one act of courage, of standing up for the truth, proved to be kind of this, this catalyst for the modern day Protestant Reformation. And it really revolutionized things. And what it basically said was this. This is what Martin Luther and John Calvin and some of the other great reformers said. Is they basically declared to the people of God, you and I are righteous by faith alone through grace. And that's it. Quit paying out money to corrupt people in the church. That's not how you're saved. I want to go back even further. There's a point to why I'm bringing up all this history. You go back even further to King Solomon. And if you open your Bible, you don't have to do it right now, but read your Bible sometime. In the book of Ecclesiastes, right near the middle, is this guy, King Solomon, who's the wisest guy to ever live. And he lived a few thousand years ago. You know what the point of that book is, essentially? Here's the, the, the theme of that book. He starts off saying this, I have almost all power. I, I have all the, all the wealth that I can do to, to move forward in life. And so he basically sought to be filled up. He sought to have his appetites filled in pleasure, in his job, in his possessions, and in all of his power. And you know what his conclusion came to? Meaningless. Meaningless. He says the word vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Thanks, Lizzie. And there's some 30 times woven in this book is this idea of chasing after the wind. Almost as common is he talks about life under the sun. You know what life under the sun refers to? Life without God in the picture. His conclusion is this. Life under the sun is meaningless. I've got it all and I can't get filled up. I can't get satisfied. I can't have my hungers filled. Apart from God, you and I don't get far, we get frustrated. We're about to sing a song. I want to invite the band to, to come on back up. And as we sing this one last song, before we go to the Word, we're going to be in the last part of John chapter 6 this morning. I want you to think about how you may have bought into being filled up in relationships, in power, in the latest gadget, in a little bit more free time or leisure time, in the vacation in the person, in the house. I want to show you a verse in James. What happens is we try, to, we try to fill up these appetites apart from God. Look at how James put this. Filling up our appetites apart from God only leads to sickness. Remember, Jesus is offering himself as the ultimate meal. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I would venture to bet, if I were a betting man, that every person in here has felt this and known this on some level. Some of you sitting here this morning may be wrestling with this immensely right now. My prayer for you as we move forward this morning, as we roll out the scriptures and lead into a welcome lunch, that you would be filled up this morning in a powerful and tangible way. I want to ask the first and second graders and workers to go ahead and dismiss right now. Um, we're going to sing this song and then uh, continue on with the service. So first through second graders and younger, I suppose, can dismiss if you so choose. The rest of you are staying in because it's the first Sunday of the month. And um, as we sing this song, we are hungry. Wants, needs, filling up, appetites. Listen for those themes. Listen for those words in here. Why don't you open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. And uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll get someone in the back to be sure and, and get you one. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first part of the New Testament, two-thirds of the way through your Bible. That's what you're looking at. Um, we've been in John now for several weeks and we're kind of looking our way through. Um, pull out in your, in your bulletin, you should have a little half sheet that has some notes for you to kind of follow along with. And... Um, also in there just is a heads up of where we're going each week. And so you can kind of get a little um, a little read on, on where we'll be next week. You can read ahead. And uh, we'd also encourage you to look at the questions that are there. Um, and uh, there's also a, a weekly memory verse that, that some of us as families, as individuals, have just been making a point of memorizing and, and putting God's Word in our heart that way. Jesus is spiritual food. John 6, verse 51 kind of taken off a little bit from where Kurt went last week, but Jesus makes this really interesting statement. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, it's just like Jesus to take something so mysterious and so grand of a thought of eternal life and the salvation from sins of human beings, all of mankind, and to liken something that grand to something as common and as really mundane as eating a meal. Eating a meal is really simple, right? We learn how to do that one pretty early on, and we do it all the time, so much so that we probably don't even think about it much of the time. Just like Jesus, to take a huge thought and be able to somehow shrink it down to the really, really simple and mundane and common. And here's what I want to do this morning. We're, we're going to take a big chunk of scripture and if we didn't take pretty big chunks, we'd be in John for like a decade. And, um, there's a lot of the Bible to look at. And so we didn't think that was appropriate. So what happens is we're going to be reading through and being in a big chunk of scripture, which means there's a lot more to dig up and a lot more to read just on your own and to, to meditate on. But I want to really camp out on this idea of Jesus being the bread of life. And if anyone eats of it, he'll live forever. I want to basically just draw five comparisons to the simple task of eating a meal to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And there's some really tangible, simple things that I want to point out to you that maybe you haven't thought about before. <clears throat> um, on the cover of your bulletin here is this title, Jesus Consumer. And uh, 
and uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into what that means a little bit. And the whole idea of a consumer, right, is is, is pretty big on Americans' minds. And and uh, we're heading into this season where um, sometimes people think that you know Christmas is too commercialized, right? And um, and so this whole idea, this notion of being a consumer, is gonna it's gonna ramp up even more. People will be talking about that and, and thinking about that. Well, in light of that kind of image, I want to throw out to you just this idea of consuming Jesus and what does that look like and, and what does that mean for us? Eating and saving faith compared. Here's the first thing I want to point out, that food is useless unless it is eaten. And it's the same way for spiritual truth. Unless you and I internalize spiritual truth, it can remain there. Maybe it's kind of pretty. This is salmon. I don't know if you can even really tell, but we love to barbecue salmon like this. And we just laugh because when we didn't have any kids, we'd go to Cosentino's and whip up these phenomenal salads with all kinds of exotic things going on. You know, now it's like my wife still does an amazing job cooking, so I don't want to slam that. But if it's up to me, bottom line is we don't, we don't get the time to, to do big, huge, fancy meals all the time, right? But we used to love to grab a, a salmon and, and put it there. It's useless to the body if it just sits there on the plate and isn't eaten. Spiritual truth is much the same way. Uh, here's, here's what some people say. I, we're, we're up with our family, and I've got a, an eighth grade. Um, uh, it's, a, it's one of Curtin's cousins, and, and, and he asked us, he said, do I have to go to church tomorrow? And, uh, you know, common middle school question, I suppose. And, um, and his dad said, yeah, yeah, you do. And he goes, why do we have to go to church? And um, his, his younger cousin by two years, you know, all of a sudden this halo appeared over his head. And I don't even think he was like really knew I was within earshot. We're out playing disc golf. So it wasn't like, you know, getting brownie points from dad. But he goes, he goes, it's so that we can feed our soul. And I'm like, huh? I'm like, cha-ching. Yes, that's right. That's my son. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, and, uh, and, and. Curran's uncle, Eric, he goes, thank you, Curran. <laughs> there, that's the reason. You know what? Part of why we gather here, it is. It's to nurture our soul. It's to feed our soul. And some people say this, oh, yeah, I've tried church, but it just doesn't work for me. I've gone to church. I, that, that, that stuff doesn't work for me. But see, spiritual truth can be there, but unless you internalize it and eat of it, it really does you no good. It's kind of like this. Man, I went away from Outback super hungry. Well, did you eat anything? No. I went in, I got a booth, looked at the menu. They even brought food out. I didn't eat anything. Restaurants just don't work for me. I go away hungry. People can do the same thing for church. It's exactly the same thing. It seems a little bit ludicrous, but people can come and try the God thing, try the Jesus thing, and go away totally hungry, missing the whole boat. They might kind of get a little sense of it, maybe smell it, but they haven't really internalized it. It's the same thing with eating a meal. The promise of Jesus is eternal life. He doesn't just say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, if you eat of this bread, me, you will get eternal life. And if you read this chapter start to finish, and you just see how many times he makes that promise, it's this drumbeat. Eat of this, you'll get eternal life. It's in verse 40. It's in verse 47. It's in verse 51. It's in verse 54. But there's a condition here. If. You eat this bread. You will receive eternal life. He states it negatively in 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, uh, you have no life in you. So there is a condition here. It's not just that it's put before you. It's a two-way street and that we need to partake of it. Just like a meal. 
Isn't that simple? Isn't that common? It makes perfect sense to us because we eat all the time. So don't mistake hearing or even memorizing the truth as the same thing as believing the truth and acting on the truth. The Pharisees had memorization of truth down pat. And they were hungry. You could be a great church attender and be starving for hope and for meaning and for life. Here's number two. Eating is prompted by hunger. Now, some of you this morning, um, how many forgot to set their clocks back? Let's just be honest and confess here. Yeah, Lucas had to raise his hand because I caught him here at the church early. And uh, that was awesome. I wasn't going to mention your name, Lucas. But um, but right now, um, just so you know, it is... Um, it's about 12:10 to your body's to your body's kind of you know time clock, and um, and some of you here this morning, oh man, you know one of the cool things about being a pastor <laughs> is that you get to dream up the illustrations for for how you want to get spiritual truth across. And um, my good friend Lizzie was gracious enough to go right at 10:30 when In and Out opened and get me this. And my body clock hasn't really adjusted yet. So for me, it's lunchtime. And, um, and I'm just going to take a bite if you're okay with that. Okay? So you, you can just watch me. And, oh, man. I, <laughs> I, know you, I know you can't smell this, but this smells really good. Oh, man. Oh. Mmm. That's good. One more. Mmm. Now. Mmm. Man, that's good. I'm going to steal someone's water. I think this is yours, Mark. Um, here's the thing. Hang on a sec. Some of you, this doesn't appeal to you at all. You're either deceived and think in and out isn't good. Or you're just not hungry. Maybe you had a really big brunch this morning. You woke up early. And, um, and you're just not hungry. If you just ate in and out on the way here, I have cheese in my teeth, sorry. Um, especially if you just had an in-out burger, you'd look at that, and this wouldn't distract you. It wouldn't tempt you. You'd be like, eh, I'm already full. But there's another group of you in here that happen to know the greatness of In-N-Out burgers. <laughs> And you're hungry. And for those of you, you're now distracted, probably the rest of the message, and I'm okay with that if I can get this point home. Um, I want to just, I want to have you take a risk here, okay? Church is a good place for risk. If you are hungry, uh, I would like you to stand up right now. And, uh, there you go. <laughs> just, now, now just, now just stay standing, stay standing and bear with me, okay? The rest of you, I want to, I want you to hang with me here. Stay standing, okay? All these people think they're getting an In-N-Out burger or a bite. It ain't going to happen. The feeding of the 5,000 was a couple weeks ago, and I've prayed for that power, and I don't have it uh, to multiply. Um, but here's the thing. Stay standing here for, for just one second and listen to this point while, while you're standing. Listen to this. The Bible instructs us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you love that language? To come in and just like taste and see how good the Lord is. For those of you who've really tasted of God and who He is and what He offers, you walk away from that and go, yes. It's a tangible yes, like 
Yes, I know the lightness of step of walking away, having tasted of forgiveness, having tasted of, 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 of grace, having tasted of life in, in Christ. It's tangible. Here's another verse. Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you know what it says after that? Who knows that? They will be filled. Now, here's the point of this. Stay standing, those of you who are hungry. I know it's taking extra energy to stand, and that makes you more hungry. But that'll be, that'll be good for a point of illustration. Here's the thing. Those who don't admit their need, those who think they're already filled, they don't receive the blessing. If you come with your own self-righteousness, you're filled up with your own self-righteousness, and you come and try to receive from Christ, you come and try to consume Christ, you don't get it. Those of you standing are going to get a blessing right now. Guys, come on forward. We've got our middle schoolers. Those of you who, those of you who have admitted a need, receive the blessing. Okay? After you get your candy bar, you can sit down. Now, It was worth it, huh? It was worth it to stand up. <clears throat> here's, the, here's the thing. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate you middle schoolers for helping us out. Here's the thing, you guys. Have you ever been so busy at work or cruising around the house or whatever, you're distracted, you're busy, and you forget to eat? You just you, you work through lunch, you work through... You're just like, man... And I'll tell you, me, my, my wife can tell me, she'll just look at me once in a while and go, you're hungry. Why does she say that? Because I'm acting like a crab. You know, I'm just like a jerk to her. And she goes, man, that's not normally like Dave. And, and, and sometimes we do that. Sometimes you sit down, you don't realize how hungry you are till you walk in and you smell dinner or something. And you're like, oh, I'm just ravenous. I'm so hungry right now. Here's the thing for me. I remember so vividly when God opened my eyes to my own lostness. I was ravenous for forgiveness. I was as hungry and thirsty for the new life that Christ had to offer as some of you are for this burger. In fact, way more. I was just hungry for it. So eating was prompted by a spiritual hunger. Here's the mystery to this chapter. This chapter speaks both of the sovereignty of God in the process of someone getting saved and of our choice in it. You read through John chapter 6, it has both components there. Those who God is drawing, those who God is stirring up in them a hunger. There are things happening in the lives of some people I've been praying for for a very long time that God right now is answering prayers in phenomenal ways. You know what he's doing? He's stirring up hunger in them. I can't do that. That has to be the work of God. Eating is prompted by hunger. Here's another one. Look at verse 57 in John 6. It says, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Are you feeding on Christ? The basic truth is this. The food that you eat becomes a part of you. And so it is spiritually. 
What you consume into the innermost parts of your body become a part of you in this, in this unique way. We see that physically. I was at a Sharks game about five or six years ago, and, um, and I was there, and uh, Unamas used to have these nachos there that were just awesome. They're so good. Not the little pump cheese that's disgusting. Real cheese melted on, you know. And I'm sitting there eating my nachos, thoroughly enjoying a Sharks game, when I, I feel something in my mouth, and I'm like, what is that? And I pull it out, and it's a Band-Aid. It's not a it's not a band-aid that's straight. It's it's in the shape of a finger. It looked it looked a little bit like this. It was about this size and it looked like it would have fit on someone's finger. Now, the reaction the reaction that all of you just had, that went down to every fingertip in my body. And here's what I did, <laughs> no joke. It was such a horrible thought to me that here's what I did. I pulled it out horrified. Here's what I did. I put it in the nachos. I took the nachos. I just slid it under my seat and I began to try to block it out of my mind. I mean, I seriously, I thought if I talk about this or even really think about this or even go back to Unamas and ask for more nachos, it will be, it will be horrendous for me and I may need counseling. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to not even say a word about it. And, and guess what I thought about through the rest of that Sharks game? The fact that there was someone's band-aid in my mouth. And that's just disgusting. Now, here's the only way I, I can think of it being worse is if I felt what it was on the way down. Because now it's in my system. Now it's a part of me in this, in this way. I can't get it back, right? It's there. It's a part of you. So Jesus says, feed on me. And there's this mystery to the fact that we're now, he's now a part of this. What a brilliant metaphor to use. Because so it is with Christ that you and I are, are, are really a part of him. Here's the point of it is that you can admire Christ as a great teacher. You can study the principles. You can model your life after him. You can buy a WWJD bracelet and bumper sticker matching set. You can do all of this stuff. And you cannot consume him. You cannot feed on him. And here's what it would be likened to. If I took food or ketchup and I smeared it on me, guess what? There's no mystery to that. It's just kind of gross. You just wash it off. It's not a part of you. But, I mean, just think about this for, for one moment. I'm going to put a graphic up here, and I want you to watch me do this. Watch this. French fry. Okay. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Now, here's the point. Hang on. Kind of dry. Hang on. I like lots of ketchup. Um, point is, that food that I just ate, you can't get it back, right? You can't pull it out and like make the French fry again. There's this mystery to the, to the digestive process that now that food, we won't go too far with this, but for a while is part of me. <laughs> Energy gets used for it. It's, it's pretty miraculous what, what just went on, right? Very common. We're going to do this at a welcome lunch in a few minutes. But here's the thing. Christ is saying, I am the ultimate meal. Feed on me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. You will have eternal life if you feed on me. That's an amazing promise. Galatians 2.20 says this, My old self... 
has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is a great mystery, family, that we ought to not take lightly. That's not just kind of a pat thing, that kind of a neat image, little Jesus living in your heart. That's not what it is. It's something much deeper than that. There's this oneness that goes on. When Jesus spoke of eating his flesh, Kurt touched on this, but that's really offensive, especially in a Jewish synagogue to be talking that way. Just really inappropriate. I'm sure the disciples many times had their inappropriate meter just go, like, Jesus, Rabbi, what are you doing? And they're just wondering if they want to stay tied to this, but they're like, oh, they're in this battle. And then when it causes all this argument, all this, you know, anger that comes out in verse 52 through 58, he presses it further. He says, not only do I want you to eat my flesh, I want you to drink my blood. Well, now you're going against Old Testament uh, um, command of God not to drink blood. And it just, it just turns on its end all the things that people had kind of thought at this point. And it really got them to think in a different way. Jesus used anger to motivate and to illustrate and to create change in people's hearts and lives. He really did. He would put a statement out there and you would just watch the crowd divide. Eating uh, food lets it become a part of you. Uh, lastly, I want to do this, or, or fourthly, eating involves trust. Um, this whole metaphor of eating the bread of life implies belief. And if you think about it, every single meal that you ever eat involves some level of trust, doesn't it? For sure, I, I would trust um, Lizzie not to have done something horrible to my burger on the way here. Um, like a Band-Aid or something like that. Um, but beyond that, even if you were in the, in the restaurant, you didn't watch the person make it probably, right? Even if you made the burger yourself, where were the tomatoes grown? You didn't go and supervise the tomatoes. Is the cow that was killed for your hamburger healthy? You don't know any of that. The simple truth is every single meal that you and I eat involves some level of trust. Isn't that true with spiritual belief? Involves trust. Eat of this bread, you will have eternal life. But wait, wait, wait a minute, I want to know all the details, all the answers. How about this? How about that? Give me everything, then I'll do it. That's not the offer. Food's brought to you at a restaurant. Wait a minute, I want to talk to the chef. I want to go visit the plant where the potatoes were grown. Where about the salt, you know, the salt flats? I mean, you could get really psycho with that, and they'd say, forget you. We're not doing any of that for you. Eat the meal or don't you? You know, that's, that's the offer. Jesus puts himself out there and says, believe in me. Eat of me, you'll have eternal life. Those of you who want everything answered in advance, God says, I don't, I don't work that way. You take a step of faith. You trust me. And then you trust me for another step, and you trust me a little bit further. Um, Dwayne just got back from China, but my wife and I, as many of you know, were in China in April. And while we were in China, um, dining in China really takes this idea of the fact that eating involves trust to like a whole new level, okay? Because as an American, um, you're over there, and most of the things that you're eating, even vegetables and such, you've never seen before. A lot of these things, you're just like, I have no idea what this is. And when you, you know, we would ask our guy these different questions, and she's like, 
trying to describe it, but some things there's just there's not even a translation for what we're eating some of the time. Probably the pinnacle of it for, for this trip was um, in, a, in a restaurant. We're eating this stuff, and I was asking my wife, I'm like, how do I even describe what we were eating? We look on the menu. We thought we ordered one thing, and they brought back something totally different and set it in front of us, and we reach in with our chopsticks, and here's the stuff, and it just goes like right in. We're like, whoa, that was weird, you know? And it's kind of like, think egg whites that are kind of starting to harden, uh, mix in some kind of fishy oil that's a little bit old tasting, um, and then kind of these mystery shrimp balls that were floating around in the midst of it, kind of bobbing. It was pretty gelatinous, you know, so if you shook the plate, it kind of just wiggled a little bit. And we're just going, what? Our, our guide wasn't with us. We're like, oh, we can handle dinner, you know, whatever. We couldn't ask what we ordered. We tasted it. Neither one of us, you know, liked it. We're, we're pretty adventurous eaters, and we're like, well, we're going to pass on this one, you know. And, um, and there just, there was, just was a lot of trust in China. You're, you're eating these different things. Um, so, of course, what, what we did was we fed it to Cassie. Um, I mean, really, really, it's what any loving parent would do is just, you know, Mikey likes it. You know? So you can see the stuff barely hanging on the chopstick here. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just this mush stuff, and, and Cassie loved it. She just, she just ate it down, man. It was great. It was this big old mound of food, and we just kept shoveling it into Cassie's mouth. Um, but Jesus offers himself as a meal with a promise. Eat of me, you get eternal life. It's all through John 6. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Do you believe that? Do you trust that offer? That's the question. Fifthly is this, that eating is personal and that no one can do it for you. We have a lot of babies being born right now. It is so awesome. I love it. Um, And one of the first acts of of free will that a baby has is whether they're going to eat or not. And this can cause mom and dad huge concerns because they're like, my baby's not eating. And it can really freak you out as a parent because you know that this little child needs to eat. It's essential for them to live. And if they're breastfeeding and they're not latching on, they're just going, this is really worrisome. This baby has to eat. But guess what? You grab a baby and you say, look, kid, you have to eat. It's for your own good. Probably if you use that tone of voice, it would just scream at you and drool. You know, it just, it wouldn't help at all. And so what a loving mother does is like, man, whatever it takes to get this child to eat, I'll coax her into eating. I'll kind of nudge her. I'm going to keep persistent. But you know that this person needs to eat. And so it is spiritually. I tell my kids all the time, my five kids know, I don't know if Cassie's quite caught on yet. But my kids know that far and above a college degree, far and above some successful career, far and above some, you know, couple little letters after a name, is that they would fall madly in love with Jesus, fall hard, follow hard after him the rest of their life. Everything else is so superfluous to me that it takes such a just second place way down here. And we've tried to orient our parenting and orient our lives around that sort of a thing. We've gone and told teachers that, you know what, ABCs, one, two, threes, those are important. We get that. We know you're a teacher and educator. But more important to us is character. More important to us is how this child listens to your, um, your leadership and submits to it. So we want to be very much in dialogue about all of those things as well. Here's the thing, though. I found myself praying as a dad, begging God for my children to love him. Praying and saying, God, would you please 
would you please stir up spiritual hunger in my kids? Starting right now. So that they, would, so they, they just won't turn from you. So that they'll follow you. So that they'll love you and serve you. And ultimately so that they'd be saved by you. But I can't do it for them, can I? God has not set it up that I could somehow do something so that it, my kids could be saved. Many of you in this room know the heartache of praying for someone that you love so dearly, want so bad to know Christ, taste of His goodness, but you can't do it for them. That's not the way it is. You know what? Other people couldn't do it for me. My parents would have wanted that for me, but they couldn't do it. Same, same thing with the meal. When you choose to eat today, think about these things, these five things, the way that a meal is similar to saving faith in Christ. The rest of the chapter, really starting from about verse 59 on, is this idea that Jesus was having this big dialogue, and then starting in verse 60, it says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And many times through the Gospels, Jesus draws this line, either with a phrase or with a parable, And he draws this line and he says, those who would choose to fall after me, you have to step over this line. It was a hard line to swallow. It wasn't sign a card or walk an aisle. It was die. It was eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was a stuff that was hard to accept. I believe this, that any time the gospel is preached faithfully and powerfully and spiritually, I believe people will respond different ways. I think if week after week after week after week, all I get from this congregation is a pat on the back that says, nice job, pastor, good sermon. I honestly don't think I'm preaching the gospel well. Because when I read this book, I don't walk away just, yippee, always always just a little smile on my face, cute little thought for the day. I walk away ticked off sometimes. I'll walk away with a a knot in my stomach because I realize I'm living something different than what this book's telling me and now I've got a crisis of faith. Am I going to trust the Bible or am I going to keep doing it my own way? I walk away overjoyed sometimes. I walk away humbled many of the times. But when Jesus spoke, there was reaction to it. I'm not going to be in here and try to be obnoxious, although eating burgers in front may be that. But I just believe that that if we are a Bible church and we're teaching the Bible, there will be reactions sometimes. And that that's a good thing and that that's a healthy thing. There's some people that I think in reaction to the religion that they've been taught or spoon-fed, in a reaction to all the legalism and all the do's and don'ts that go with it, and all the religion, which which we say all the time here, all that does is kill. Religion kills. But in a reaction to all of that, there's a, there's a popular thread that just says this. You know what? God doesn't want anything from you. All he wants is to be with you and be in relationship. But there's a problem with that. It's not true. It just isn't. It sounds really good, and there's a part of that that's really true. I was on a bike ride with a guy yesterday, and he came out of a real legalistic kind of environment in some ways, I think, because he, he just was saying how freeing it is to know that, that we're already in God's good graces because of the blood of Christ. And now every choice that goes on after that isn't earning our place into heaven 
or earning our way back into God's good favor, that's a done deal. It's just living out a response to that. But if you read the gospel, if you read the Bible, what you see is this. There's always a call for response of some kind. Look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3.10. He's preaching and the crowd says this. What then should we do? The crowd asked. John didn't say, just be. Just relate to God. You're done. No, he says this. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to. He told them. Then some soldiers came and asked, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. You know what it led to? It led to social action. It led to personal transformation. It led to others first. It led to dying to self. It led to being Christ-like, right? How about Peter? Peter preaches this phenomenal sermon in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the people heard this, all that he had talked about, and it was a hard-hitting sermon, read it sometime, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's a common thread here that people hear the gospel and they instinctively know there's something I want to do about this. What is it? Please tell me. Peter replied, repent. That means turn. Turn from your life of sin. Don't keep living the way you're, you're, you're living. That's an action step. That's a reaction. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He didn't say it once. He said it over and over. He called for some kind of action. We have this phrase we've used at NBC for a long time that says this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. The come as you are part is this. You and I, every single one of us, no matter how cleaned up we look today, come in with muddy feet, with at times horrible thoughts and motives running through our hearts and our heads, with hands that essentially have blood on them of other people, with lips that have cursed people that God's created. And we've come and we've come to the, to the foot of the cross all as needy, helpless, can't do it on our own, hungry sinners. And Jesus says, I've paved the way for you to be a part of my family. Pull up a chair. You're adopted into me as one of my own. You're covered. Your sins are forgiven. And that's why we sit, when we sing, come Lord Jesus, come, we need that this Sunday as much as we did 20 years ago for some of us. But Christ, the second the Holy Spirit invades your life, the Holy Spirit is interested in redecorating you. He doesn't want to move in and just let things maintain how they are. Because on your own, on my own, we're a mess. Come as you are. Everyone's welcome here at Neighborhood Bible Church because that's what Jesus would have. But don't stay that way. Part of being a part of a loving biblical community is that you would come in and be loved deep enough by people who love you enough to say things that hurt even. To say things that are offensive. To come alongside and correct you of your horrible view of yourself. To come and put their arm around you, to love you, to be concerned about you. 
Jesus consumer. Let's go back to this thought for a second. The word consume on the back side, or actually bottom of your handout, a few definitions I just want to give to you. One version of the word consume is this, to destroy completely. I think there are at least three responses to Jesus that, that we often see in the Bible, and we just see experientially. One definition, to destroy completely, like the fire consumed the house. One idea of a Jesus consumer is one who eats Jesus Christ for lunch. This is the person at the office who can't wait to pick a fight with the Christians. They cannot wait for some Christian to blow it in the media because they want to come hunt you down and they just want to make a mockery of you. This is the person who can't wait to come and blast the pastor after a message with an email and just scoff and make a mockery of things that are sacred. This is the person in your family, perhaps, that just uses cutting words and deep cutting things to things that you hold deeply and dear and true. They're not hungry for Christ in that sense. They want to chew your passion for life in Christ and spit it out. They're a Jesus consumer in that sense. John chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to get to it next week. It says this, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, catch this, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Consume, to destroy completely. There are people who will be so ticked off at you as a Christian as you stand up for Christ. They will literally, potentially, want to take your life. And if they don't do it physically, they'll try to sap every other angle of it out of you. Be braced for it. Know that that's how they treated Christ. Here's the second definition. To use up resources or materials. I would add, or people. Here's the Jesus consumer who uses Jesus for their own life goals. These are the people who came for the free meal, right? Feeding the 5,000, let's go find that master. Free meal. Kurt talked about bread a bunch last week and what can we get from Jesus? These are people who come to church and go, man, there's a really lot of, there's a ton of nice people. They give me stuff. There's a ton of people who've kind of welcomed me in when most groups, you know, think I'm socially inept and awkward and so they've shunned me. So they come to the church and they come and, and there are people, that's part of what a shepherd's job is, is to go, Lord, is this, is this person a sheep who's loved by you and called by you and needs to be nurtured and fed by you? Or is this person a wolf who's come to prey on sheep, either through th- theological discourse, drilling down into some fine little theological, you know, nook and cranny and want to take a group of people off on some weird theology. I'll tell you, as a youth pastor, college pastor, one of my main radars was guys coming in and looking for church girls. You want to light a fire under me and get me ticked off? That's how you do it. And honestly, a lot of years in youth ministry, you can spot them a mile away. And you just call people on it. You can see what's in their heart, what's in their, what's in their minds. That's part of a shepherd's job is to say, what's going on here? What's this person here getting roped into community for? Well, isn't the pastor's job to not, just to be nice to everyone? No. The pastor's job is to shepherd the flock. Shepherds aren't nice to everyone. You don't coddle a wolf and pet it and put a cute little chain around it. You shoo it away. You drive it away. So, Jesus consumer, 
One who destroys completely, one who uses up resources and materials. Two more definitions for you. One is to engage fully. As in, my husband is consumed with football. We all can get that, maybe. To engage fully is one definition. Here's another one. To take in as food or drink. We're about to consume a meal together as a welcome lunch. These two definitions, I think, tie into this idea of a Jesus consumer. One who takes in Jesus as as he would a meal. Think about all the things we just talked about as a meal. Willingly. With trust involved. I would add enthusiastically the way it says to engage fully. If you were to kind of take a picture of this, I think it would look something like this. Any of you who have a toddler in your house, mealtime is a constant adventure. Um, Notice the banana slices perched on the edge of the tray. Um, Those are the ones that remained up top. The rest of them are on our carpeted floor that sits beneath the rest of our house. Um, The bowl on her head used to hold probably yogurt is my guess. Um, But this is someone who's engaged fully in the meal. What if your quiet times look something like this? Just a joyful exuberance. You're making a mess of yourself. It's okay. I don't scold Cassie for spilling stuff like this. I want to train her up. That's not cute at 14. That's a little obnoxious. But, but you say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to have a quiet time. You know what? Take in the meal. I think your Heavenly Father looks down and just is overjoyed at your bumbling, stumbling prayers and, and our quiet times that we have. Wipe the seriousness off and the, you know, you need a clean, well-lighted place all the time. You know what? Go just dive in. Strap on like this, you know, she's not even wearing a bib this time, but strap on a bib and just go for it sometime. Just dive into Jesus. I want to invite the band back up and we're going to, we're going to wrap up with the song. And as, we, as they do... I want you to look at your bulletin cover for a moment. And on the bulletin cover is this picture of Jesus and he's holding a bunch of gifts. And I don't know why, but I've never really noticed this until this week that the word us is in the word Jesus. Maybe I'm a little slow. But I think there's two ways of looking at that. I think you can look at Jesus and focus on the us. In other words, you can be self-focused while having your eyes on Christ. You notice the us in that. I think a different way of looking at it is this, that Christ in us, us in Christ, one with Christ. The fact that the collective us is wrapped up in this word Jesus was just kind of a cool little visual for me. We're going to sing a song right now that just focuses on this perfect meal, the Lamb of God that was, that was slaughtered on behalf of us so that we could come in and dine with Him and He with us. And as we do that, I just want to have you turn your hearts. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that we can glean from it. I praise You that we can partake of You even as we sing a song and that You can reveal truth to us around the table at a welcome lunch as much as you can sitting in a church building. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to trust, to believe, to feast on you the rest of this morning and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.